This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Evan Lazar here, Patriots insider and host of the Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Network. As always, our content is powered by our exclusive wagering partners, betonline.ag. Use the promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your welcome deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Podcast Network and on Patriots Press Pass. I'm Evan Lazar, joined as always by Alex Barr. Today is a Q&A edition of the show, so go on and ask your questions right there in the chat. We're going to get to as many as we can for the next 45 minutes or so before the main event of the Boston Sports Minute going into game one of the NBA Finals. But hopefully we can kill some time together for this 9 p.m. tip-off for the Celtics tonight against the Warriors by talking some Patriots. And I want to open on the offense and the direction of the scheme on the offense. So a few housekeeping notes before we do, though. Next week is mandatory minicamp, uh, Tuesday through Thursday, down at Gillette Stadium. It's closed to the public, but it is open to the media. So Alex and I will be out there all three days breaking down what happens on the practice field where we should actually get to see some real football next week. Not like the practice we were at on Tuesday where it was mostly conditioning and walkthrough periods. Tuesday through Thursday and next week will be some real football action. No pads yet, but at least some real seven on seven and 11 on 11 teamwork uh, that we'll get to see from the Patriots. So I want to preface what I'm about to say with, I think next week is going to be a real indication of where the offense is heading schematically. And maybe these first couple of OTA practices could have all been smoke and mirrors or just something that they were working on, but not really planning on completely overhauling. But Kendrick Bourne had some comments today to Mike Reese and Zach Cox at a charity event about how the Patriots are switching their terminology offensively. He called it a new system that the Patriots are running offensively under Joe Judge and Matt Patricia, primarily with under the watchful eye of Bill Belichick. And based off of the things that we have seen in the first two OTA practices, Alex, the indication is that new system will look a lot more like the Shanahan coaching tree than the McDaniels playbook did. So I want to start there and just kind of explain to people what exactly that means, what that look like, what that is going to look like, who's going to benefit the most out of it. But what is your initial reaction to hearing Kendrick Bourne use the terminology new system over the last couple of days? That's a pretty big phrase to throw out there for the Patriots. I, I don't love it. I, I'll be honest. I don't think a full-on switch to the Shanahan system is the best thing for this team right now. I think that they've got tremendous depth at skill positions. I don't think the Shanahan system capitalizes on that. I think they've struggled developing scheme touch players in the past. A lot of that system involves scheme touch things, so that kind of worries me a little bit. Uh, I, I would have liked to see them just modernize the current offense they had. I don't think they needed to change everything. Um, you know, we'll we'll see what it looks like. We'll see if it's a full on thing or if this is just something they're adding. But I, I I'm a little worried about it. I'm going to be honest. I'm a little worried about it. Yeah, it is a big overhaul to change it up completely into the Shanahan tree. And I, I want to outline a few of the key differences so that we can break them down a little bit further between what the Patriots typically did under Josh McDaniels and what the Shanahan tree does under Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, Matt LaFleur, you know, that entire tree has had a lot of success and now has a lot of branches in different places in the NFL as well that are head coaches, OCs running that type of system. So the biggest difference I would say between the Shanahan tree 
and the Patriots over the years is that the Shanahan tree majors in zone blocking. They are an outside zone based foundation with some inside zone sprinkled in there and some split zone to get into the particulars, but they are a zone blocking scheme. They are a scheme that's looking to set up cutback lanes. That's looking to bounce runs to the outside. Typically you see linemen blocking outside zone. So you're stepping towards the sideline and flowing horizontally to stretch out the defense and create those creases to cut back across the grain and up the field. This is not a vertical run game, not a downhill run game. The Patriots in the past have typically been a pull the guard, lead the fullback through the hole and get downhill and knock over the defense like bowling pins. This is a much more stretch horizontal type of look where you're trying to get guys that are fast, that are good ball carriers in space to create with the football. So the foundation is really that blocking scheme outside zone from there you then build into it things like outside zone bootleg play action right where you're running outside zone up front and then you bootleg the quarterback off the play action fake and you create deep shots down the field off those bootleg actions which we've seen the Patriots drill a a ton of out at practice over the last two weeks so you have outside zone then you have bootleg action and I think the third biggest thing that you're you were just getting at Alex is the Patriots, although they did it a little bit, for the most part, they are a pre-snap shift team, not a pre-snap motion team. And that's a, there's a big difference to that. Shifting is just we're going to take one wide receiver on the right side of the formation, and then we're going to move them on the left side of the formation. And all that is is a way to indicate the coverage, to change things right before the snap, to confuse the defense, and to basically just change the formation. What the Shanahan tree does is they use pre-snap motion, which means that jet motion, end around motion, and even blocking motion, but with those two first ones, they are motioning to get the football in the hands of the player in motion, right? Or they're using it as a decoy because they do that so often where they actually hand the ball off to the jet motion. Now, all of a sudden they are doing it to mimic it in what you would call a ghost motion where you're faking the motion to get them to look over here and then you hit it over there. So you mentioned scheme touches. That's sort of what that's getting at. Now, if we have to spin it forward, I think the biggest question is, is what you hinted at there. And I see it in the chat already. Why this direction instead of moving towards the Alabama offense, the Sarkeesian O'Brien model down at Tuscaloosa that Mac Jones ran in 2019? Why would the Patriots go in this direction instead of going in the direction of that Alabama offense? I can't tell you. I don't know, especially because it's not like they brought in somebody from the Shanahan system, right? When we were talking about potential new coaches, offensive coordinators, Zach Robinson was the guy we talked a lot about. Um, and that was the thing it was like, all right, well, if he comes in, they're going to have to run this. I, I, I don't may, I don't know why, maybe because it, that system has had success against bill for the most part over the last few years. I, I think we all remember that game in 2020 where the Niners came in and just beat the bag out of the Patriots with Jimmy Garoppolo right. under center. Maybe it's that maybe it's something he sees in, in the way Buffalo and Miami and the jets are building their defenses that he thinks this is the best way to compete, compete in the AFC East, you'll see teams make scheme decisions based on things like that from time to time. Uh, but I, 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 I can't come up with it. Maybe it's, maybe it's as simple as Johnny Smith. Yeah. The one player in this offense who's going to benefit from this more than anything else is Johnny Smith. And by the way, in terms of just skill position players, the, the second most logical fit here is Nikhil Harry. So if you want to figure out how to try to get, maximize those investments, this kind of shift would do that. I know that's going to kill some Patriots fans. And by the way, Another player who's a really good fit for this scheme is Isaiah Wynn. Yeah. So maybe they're just trying to get the most out of those guys. Maybe those are guys they see that have underperformed, that they don't like that have underperformed, and they want to tr- try to tailor for to those guys. Realistically, it's probably a combination of multiple things, but it, it, it's hard to think of a reason when you have, you know, Mac Jones, when you have this Alabama presence, you're bringing back guys who have been in your system or have been in, in related systems and Joe Judge and Matt Patricia and guys like that why you wouldn't go that route. Cause I think the Alabama system, the Patriots system are relatively similar. The Alabama yeah. one just has some more RPO stuff added in. I don't know why you wouldn't go that route instead of reinventing the whole thing. So 
so my one theory that you didn't already float there, and I want to get to the Johnny angle of this in a second, because I do think that that's a factor. The, the one thing you didn't bring up there that I think is, is a factor here is simplification. And when you look at notoriously, when you start talking about the Shanahan tree and the way that they operate, it is on the whole a much easier system in the passing game to run than what the Patriots typically do. They do have some site adjustments or route conversions down the field, but you're really talking about conversions that are very typical, I guess is the word across all levels of football. You know, they becoming very commonplace these conversions that they do have in their offense. And it's very, it's obvious, right? Like it's okay. So instead of running a post into the post safety, I'm going to run a deep crossing route. So I'm going to go across his face instead of running right into him. But if it's split safety, I'm going to split the two safeties on a real post pattern. That's just common sense. Like you don't run into the defender, right? right? So most receivers can grasp that pretty easily. Most of the time with the Shanahan tree or McVay's offense, they have one receiver in their more spread looks when they do typically go shotgun and they take it away from the under center stuff that has an option route. So they have one choice route runner is what they call it. in that system in Los Angeles with the Rams, it's Cooper cup that runs those routes in San Francisco with the Niners. It's George Kittle that typically runs those routes, but it's one receiver. It's not the whole concept changing or evolving based off the coverage. It's little tweaks here and there, sometimes on the outside routes, but for the most part, things are locked in place a lot more. So in some respects, you hear that and you say, okay, well, Mac Jones doesn't need to do that because Mac Jones got a great football mind, a really high football IQ. That's one of the advantages is that he doesn't necessarily need this simplified scheme. I think a lot of the times you hear with the Shanahan tree as well, that for quarterbacks, this is the easiest productive system to run in in college or the nfl right guys really in quarterbacks in particular aaron Rodgers won a couple mvps running this system with matt lafleur it is a simplified scheme in that respect so the quarterback it's much easier on him but it's also easier on the receivers which i think is a big part of this because you had draft tyquan thornton you mentioned Nikhil harry trying to make it easier for guys to be integrated into the system both young and veteran players that they sign or trade for is a big part of this and the other thing that i think is a factor here is coaching because if you start to get the coaching staff that's relatively new to coaching offense and is in this big turnover with josh mcdaniel's leaving i think that they are trying to keep things simple and I don't think that it's just about the players. I, I also think that it points a little bit to the coaching staff and the fact that, that you try to put this system in place with Joe Judge and Matt Patricia that has been in place for 10 plus, 20 plus years that has all sorts of little nuances and tricks and things that you really need to know the nitty gritty details of you might get yourself a little bit bogged down if you're the coaching staff as well. So I look at this and I say, they're trying to keep things simple on on multiple levels. And for the receivers that are coming into the system, I actually don't think that that's a terrible thing. I don't love that they have to, for lack of a better term, dumb it down a little bit for the coaching staff, right? Like those guys shouldn't need it to be dumbed down, but for the receivers for Tyquan Thornton, it probably is the best that he's not going to be bogged down by the route details and the route tree that the Patriots typically use with Josh McDaniels. I don't think that, but making it easy for the receivers, I think the Alabama one isn't that overly complicated either. Right. And you mentioned Tyquan Thornton there and they, you know, they want to make it easier for him to transition. Well, if they're going to be in the Shanahan offense, Kyle attack on Thornton's not going to play, right? Cause the whole, or he's not going to play a ton because a lot of that is predicated on you have your five guys and you're rolling with those five guys and you don't really have different sets. You might have different formations, but you're in 11 or maybe you're in 21 with the, you know, fullback tight end, whatever, but yeah. how much room for there, how much room is there for the, Right now, what is he fifth? Right? How much room is there for the yeah, fifth maybe, maybe not as on rookie. the depth chart? Yeah, yep. But, it depends. But I, I don't know. I I don't know. I, I I still think that it it's a I, I think it's a bit of an overreaction. If so you, you mentioned where's the fit for Taekwon? I, I think he has a great fit in this offense long term. We'll see if he grasps it quickly enough, but 
in this offense, the post route runner is critical because you have to take two guys with you down the field, right? Like that's the whole system is predicated on those play action shots down the field off post cross or post corner cross concepts, things like that. That's what they run off those bootleg actions. If you have a guy like Tyquan Thornton running a four taking the top off the defense, in theory, you're getting that crossing route at the intermediate level, a lot of one-on-one looks. And that's the whole idea of the play is that the post route is really a clear out. It's a clear out route, right? Whereas the route that you're trying to throw to the number one in the progression is that crosser. So if you have Tyquan Thornton over the top, that in theory is going to be his role in that kind of scheme. And that's essentially what he did at Baylor under Jeff Grimes, who's a big outside zone guy as well as threaten that, that deep uh, middle or deep third and push it up the field and make guys cover you. So that way there you can open up the intermediate level. The other thing about this that worries me a little bit and, you know, maybe some of my bias, I, I won't call it bias because I think I'm right, but maybe some of my belief in that Kyle Shanahan's a bit of an overrated coach is coming in here. How shanahan are they going to get? I think there's inherent yeah. issues with this scheme that I would like to believe, and I, I do believe Bill Belichick is smart enough to not dive into, but we'll see with the other two guys, right? Remember in the playoffs, the 49ers kept putting Trent Williams in the all pro left tackle, one of, if not the best left tackle in the league. Yeah. And they kept using him as a fullback on like third and one and putting him in motion away from the run. Like, are, are the Patriots going to be doing that with Trent Brown? That won't work. It doesn't work. They lost the game because of that. You saw the Rams, their first trip to the Super Bowl. And, and for a couple of years after some of the things about the Shanahan system, you mentioned how it's a little more simplistic. Well, there's less variation. If a team can figure out how to stop you schematically, you can't, there's not as many adjustments you can make out of it. Yeah. Right. You, you really just – the reason the Rams were able to win with it and the reason I think a lot of Shanahan teams struggle to win is at a certain point you go up a team – you go up against a team that's more talented than you. And the reason the Rams were able to win is because they just accumulated the most talent, right? Odell Beckham and and they added Matt Stafford. He was a big addition and Cooper Cup, you know, totally went to another level this year and all of that. Are the Patriots at that level? I mean, I think they could be, right? I think they could be in a couple of years, certainly. I like Mac Jones. I think – Stafford is probably, you know, borderline MVP candidate. That's probably right around his ceiling. Uh, We'll see kind of how the wide receiver turnover continues to go, but there's not a lot of room to move if what you're doing isn't working in the Shanahan system. That's another thing that worries me about it. Okay, so lastly, to wrap up this discussion, then we'll get to some of your questions. Please do uh, flood the chat with as many questions as you can. We'll get to as many of them as we can. You mentioned Johnny Smith, who if you pull – start to pull down this, this theory and start to work your way down of who this impacts and the domino effect of them transitioning to this scheme. The player that's set to benefit the most out of this by far is Johnny Smith. He is the exact type of tight end that belongs in that kind of system. A player that can, I think, blur the lines a little bit between what the Niners do with Debo and what the Niners do with Kyle Juszczyk, right? I think he can do a little bit of both of those things. He can be the guy that is on the scheme touch element of the offense, whether it's end arounds, jet sweeps, motion screens into the flat, things like that, that we've seen the Niners do. You mentioned that game in 2020, we saw them do that at nauseum to the Patriots, throw those little motion screens where they bring a guy across into the flat. They set up a little bubble screen on the outside for him, and you get the numbers there, and you run it down their throats. Janu, as the ball carrier in those situations, on those scheme touches, his ability to be athletic and block on the move. When you watch this Shanahan offense, you see guys like Kittle, like check They come across the formation. They hit from different angles. They work from the backfield. There's a lot of multiplicity to that role that I think Johnny Smith could thrive with. So the person that's set to benefit the most out of this transition is definitely Janu in my mind. Is that a good thing for the Patriots? I mean, it is a good thing to get more out of Johnny Smith. It might be at the expense of some other things that we don't like, but if they do transition to this offense that Johnny Smith should thrive in it is basically what I'm getting at. I would think so. I mean, it's, it's very kind to that move tight end position and that's ideally what he should, what he should be right. That's ideally his role. So yeah, he should, if this is the way they're going to go, he should, he should have a bounce back season. Absolutely. 
Yeah, it's also very similar to what the Titans did with him as well. And, and yeah. there's some overlap there down in Tennessee with Arthur Smith over the years of what they do with their offense. And it's not exactly the same thing as the Shanahan offense, but it's very, very similar. So in a lot of ways, this does seem like a good transition for Johnny Smith. We'll see about the rest of the offense. I want to take a second to shout out our friends at betonline.ag. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the playoffs, fights, and even next season's futures. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting in your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Let's stick on offense here and ask kind of the second biggest question in the room right now. I think for the Patriots as we move forward here uh, to next week with mandatory minicamp is the status of Isaiah Wynn, who is now all of a sudden, I think, at the forefront of trade speculation. I, I, I We kind of threw it out there right after the first OTA practice as a potential flyer, but once Mike Reese puts you in the notes on Sunday that you, that you could be a potential trade candidate and Tom Curran writes about you as a potential trade candidate. Now this is starting to get a little bit more steam and not just us throwing out theories or throwing out potential ideas or, or things like that on the pod. Where are you at right now with Isaiah Wynn, who has not reported to Gillette stadium as of yet for OTAs, the, the uh, non the voluntary portion of the spring. He's not participated in those voluntary practices. I assume he'll be there next week for mandatory minicamp, unless he's holding out for an extension, which I think is ballsy, quite frankly, on his part, given the way that he's played to be, you know, negotiating an extension at this point when you're set to make $10.4 million, which is easily more money than you're going to get guaranteed in an extension. If you do sign an extension with the Patriots, but do you see the Patriots actually, entertaining a trade for Isaiah Wynn or trading away Isaiah Wynn, or do you think this is just us looking to fill time? Um, I could see it. I, I think it depends. And I've talked about this before. I think it depends on how they view Justin Huron, right. Or maybe Andrew Stuber or any of those other tackles. If they feel like they could get replacement level value at either the left or right tackle, or it could be, you know, if they think if they want to put Michael and Wynn at right tackle again, which again, I think they should, I think that's his best position. Right. And they feel comfortable with Trent Brown at left. Basically, if they feel like they can get level performance with or without win on the roster, it makes all the sense in the world to trade him. And there's precedent for it. That's what they did with Sony Michelle last year. Right. right? Ramondre Stevenson showed he was going to give them approximately, you know, at the time it looked like, all right, well, he'll give us at least what we were expecting from Sony. So then Sony becomes expendable on a contract year and they trade him and tackles a higher value position. Isaiah wins had a better career to this point than Sony Michelle had to that point. You're going to get more value for him. Uh, especially I, I think a team with a chance to sign him, if a team really likes him. And I think that he would be valued more elsewhere than here based on scheme fit. Although if they're going Shanahan, maybe not, but um, I think a team with a chance to sign him without him hitting the market, there's some value in that as well. Right. So if they feel comfortable with it, yeah, I, it, it makes a total sense. It makes total sense. And it's something that they've shown they would do. I totally buy that. But if they don't believe in Haran, if they don't believe in on when to it right tackle, if they don't like, you know, any of the other options on the roster, then it becomes a little bit trickier because you're making yourself worse at a very crucial position. So yeah. I, I buy it to the extent that I think they would do it. I think there's some other unanswered questions that I don't know if it's definite, but it's, you know, if, if the conditions are right within the building, which they could be, then yeah. it's definitely a possibility. Yeah. Between Justin Haran, Mike on I'll put Yadni Kajus' name out there. Just you will. Put it out there. That's your I guy. Will. You will. It's true. I love the draft pick at the time. Andrew Stuber, even I think we can mention too, uh, although sure. we haven't seen much of him. Uh, he's another name that could played right tackle his entire career at Michigan, basically. So he's somebody else that could play on the right side with Trent flipping over to the left side. If any one of those guys gives them solid play in training camp and in the preseason where they feel confident enough that they can move on from Isaiah Wynn, 
it, it solves a lot of ills for them cap wise. It's $10.4 million of cap space that gets you right in position to be able to afford everything that you need to do throughout the rest of the season. Plus maybe potentially add another player from the outside too, if you want to go ahead and add a player. So in a lot of ways, it's killing, a, you know, it's getting a lot of things out of the way with one move, right? You, you check a lot of boxes with one trade. Now, I think the biggest question that you have other than the fact of, you know, it makes you worse potentially. And, and are you willing to take that step? And are you willing to take that risk with protecting Mac Jones in particular after you drafted a guard in the first round? And that seems to be an emphasis overall is keeping Mac upright to trade one of uh, your starting offensive linemen is a, a little bit of a different approach than that. I think the other thing that you have to bring into this conversation is compensation, because quite frankly, He's not been very good over the last couple of years, and he's been injured in and out of the lineup. I don't think he was particularly great last year. I think that was kind of a down year overall for Isaiah Wynn, especially in the first half of the season. He started to figure it out. Once they moved Ted Karras in at left guard and on Wenu to the bench, it stabilized it a little bit for Isaiah Wynn at left tackle. But for the most part, that was not a great season by any stretch for Isaiah Wynn. So when we start to have these conversations about moving Wynn, the question is not just, okay, the cap space might help them, right? That might help them operate a little bit more smoothly throughout the rest of the season. But what exactly are you getting in return for Isaiah Wynn? And if you're not, if you're going to get a conditional sixth round pick, then is it really worth it just to save the cap space or is it better to keep up, hang on to the player? The other thing I would add is you, you kind of want to look at this big picture, right? They've already lost both starting guards. If you trade win, that's three. Let's say you move Trent Brown. You suddenly have four offensive new, essentially new offensive linemen from last year. And we remember yeah. early last season, it's expected with a rookie quarterback, but early last season, communication was a big problem up front. And Mac talked about it and David Andrews talked about it. And a lot of guys talked about it, right? They just kind of had to get used to it. And again, that's growing pains that comes with the rookie quarterback. That's part of it. But do you want to now do that again in year two? And again, they're already down two guards. And it, it helps that Michael Owenwender was here last year and he started some games. So that makes it a little bit easier. But yeah, now you're looking at four new guys up front, a new offensive system, a new number one wide receiver, now we're now we're approaching on dinking around with Mac Jones development territory. And that's the last no quarterback coach. That's the last thing. That's the last place you want to be is dinking around with your young quarterback with a promising rookie season. That is what the Jets do. That is what the Browns do. That is yeah. what the Bengals do. You don't want to be doing that. So, again, I think there's I, I wouldn't not trade Isaiah Wynn just because I'm worried about Mac Jones development. It's not to that extent, but things are starting to add up here. And unless you get a good deal and you're confident in who else is coming in, it does feel a little bit forced because I think there are some risks in moving him, even if he's not everybody's favorite player. Yeah. If I had to make a, a bet on it on June 2nd here and, and granted is I say it's June 2nd because that's it's June 2nd. Right. So we're, we're right. a long way away from this decision. If, if I had to make a bet here, though, I, I'm with you and what you just said, Alex, and the fact that that's just a lot of moving parts in one offseason. Yeah. I think that he ends up staying put and probably walks next year in free agency to a team that's willing to actually pay him some capital, but not the Patriots, but it's probably better off for them to keep the continuity, to keep the player. And then if he does have a good season, well, then you get the comp pick in 2023 uh, for him signing elsewhere in free agency. Right. So right. that I think is probably the, the best case scenario for the Patriots, if this was a different situation, if McDaniels was still here and they were still doing things the same way and all that type right. of stuff, I, I would look at it differently. I'd probably look at it differently if they had Shaq Mason still here as well, to be honest with you. But yeah, certainly if at the end of the day, it wouldn't, it wouldn't completely surprise any of us though, because if Justin Huron is 85% as good as Isaiah Wynn is, and he's, a tenth of the cost of Isaiah win this year, then those are the types of moves that they make that that's the right. type of way that they operate that if they can have the same production and the same level of player for a fraction of the cost, then they're going to go ahead and make those types of moves. So we'll, we'll end up seeing what's, what's happening there with Isaiah win. I'm sure that will continue to be a storyline. I haven't seen this exact question in the chat, but I think that the next 
it kind of goes hand in hand with Nelson Aguilar too. So we can just bring that up now as well. Uh, do you see this as a, it's kind of a similar situation, right? Where they have a younger player in Taekwon Thornton who is potentially cheaper and maybe the same effectiveness as a guy like Aguilar, who's due $14.8 million on his contract in terms of the cap hit uh, for the 2022 season is most likely not going to produce or have the opportunity to produce like a $14.8 million player. The Patriots can save $9 million by trading him. They can even save $4 million by releasing Nelson Aguilar. If they don't have a trade partner and they think Tyquan Thornton's ready, this one to me actually is more realistic in a lot of ways for cutting or trading Nelson Aguilar than trading Isaiah Wynn because it's easier to move his contract, I think, first and foremost. And secondly, I have a lot more confidence in the guy they drafted 50th overall than I do in some of the options that they have at backup tackle right now. Yeah, I mean, you hit it right there. It's that big if. It's that big caveat. Where's Tyquan Thornton at? If Tyquan Thornton truly needs a redshirt year, I don't – well, I guess I, I, I under their old system, you can't move Aguilar then because you need four or five receivers. If they're going to Shanahan it up and just use three guys – then yeah. maybe you're okay. Then then maybe that makes it a little bit easier. So I, yeah, I, 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 I could see it. I, I think it hinges on Thornton ultimately, but I could see it. Ultimately though, doesn't it, when you say it hinges on Thornton, if all they're going to do is have Nelson Aguilar running wind sprints like he did last year, well, you just got the fastest guy in the draft at the position. Can't he just go out there and run wind sprints? Like I know but, that's a simplification and I'm not the simplification type of guy, but when it comes down to it, if you're just asking him to clear out coverage anyways, then Tyquan Thornton gets the reps. He's got the speed. We know that. And he's a fraction of the cost. I, I, I just don't see the argument necessarily unless you're really banking on the fact that if you slow play it with Tyquan Thornton, you're going to have a perennial thousand yard receiver in the long run. Whereas maybe they're concerned that if they throw him out there too early, then they have, then they deter his development, right? Maybe that's the case, yeah. but I don't know. What I would say to that is I think at the very least, even though his numbers weren't productive, I think teams respected Nelson Aguilar last year. Yeah. I mean, look how different defenses looked with him on the field versus off. You you were forcing defenses into two high looks for the most part with Aguilar on the field. When he's not on the field, like in that Buffalo game, they're putting nine guys in the box. Yeah. You can't, you can't have that. Our, our team's going to respect Tyquan Thornton the way they respected Nelson Aguilar. I don't think so. At least not right away. And maybe Thornton can make them, but that's a, that's an awfully large bet you're making because if they're going to put, especially if you're going to, if you want to go Shanahan, if you want to go West coast and they're going to have eight, nine man boxes, and just sending linebackers downhill, you're, you're going to be absolute toast. That's not going to work. Yeah. So I, it's, it's a risk. Thornton has to show something in the preseason that's going to make defenses respect him, keep two safeties deep, put top corners on the outside so the corners can't, you know, if they're, you know, corners can't jam inside and throw off timing because with a lot of this play action motion stuff, it's all timing, right? It's a timing based offense. I, I, I still, I, I'm not totally against moving. Aguilar, I think it's a major yeah. risk if you don't know for sure what Tyquan Thornton can give you. And I don't think we have the answer to that yet. I don't think they have the answer to that yet, right? Sometimes we talk about these hypotheticals and I say, well, they know in the building. We just don't know and we have to guess. Yeah. I don't think they know in the building at this point. So, yeah, I um, I, I, I think we, we can't answer that question right yet. But right now I'd be leaning they can't move them. Yeah, it's... It's an interesting conversation. I, again, I, I just feel a little bit more confident in Taekwon Thornton actually becoming a good enough player on the outside to make defenses respect the, the vertical route and open up the intermediate stuff. And I'll do. I all think that. he can get there eventually. Yeah. It's, can he get there in year one? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Uh, let's go over to defense. Uh, a question about Marcus Jones here. Uh, we haven't talked a ton about Marcus Jones in the two OTA practices and the recap shows because he hasn't really been a big factor. Uh, we've thrown out there that he's probably going to be more of just a return man in, in year one. And maybe that ends up being the case, but what is your outlook right now on Marcus Jones? I know there's a lot of Patriots fans out there that are clamoring for this guy to get touches on offense and just to get the football in his hand some more and, and see him do some different things. Where do you think this is headed with Marcus Jones? The offense thing. It's very interesting and I don't hate it, but that's, 
a year two, year three thing, right? Even looking back at Devin Hester, they didn't, the Bears didn't start playing him on offense till year two, really till year three. Year two was like an emergency thing. They were banged up, right? I'm not saying Marcus Jones is going to be Devin Hester, but it's an unusual yeah. situation. It's the closest comp we have. I, I think he's mostly returner this year. I think there'll be some games that don't jump down my throat because I don't think he's the same player. But yeah. remember like Juwan Williams early in his career when he was the tight end stopper, there were certain – like his role really varied game to game. When they played the Chiefs, when they played the Raiders, when they yeah. played the Dolphins, these teams with these big elite tight ends, he would be out there more. Other games, not so much. I think you see something similar with Marcus Jones where when they play the Dolphins, right? The Dolphins is a big one, who have two elite, fast slot receivers. And Marcus Jones is very yeah. fast, right? When they have to defend Jalen Waddle and Tyreek Hill, that's probably a Marcus Jones game. That's probably yeah. a game we see him on the field a bit more – other situations, you know, they go up against the Jets who have some bigger guys, not quite as much. I think Jonathan Jones is still the top slot corner. I think he's still going to be the number one in that role. And I don't think Marcus Jones, I don't think either of them are playing much on the boundary. They're both pretty much uh, slot specific defenders. I think Jones is going to be a returner with, with uh, you know, game to game usage. And then Jonathan Jones, a free agent at the end of the year, he moves on. And then, Mark, you know, this time next year, we talk about, well, they need a big year to jump for Marcus Jones because he's replacing Jonathan Jones, right? I think that's the way that sort of goes. So you kind of hinted at it there as well. And, and I think the biggest thing for Marcus Jones to play on defense has nothing to do with Jonathan Jones this year, maybe next year, but it's actually more to do with Miles Bryant, right? Can you beat out Miles Bryant for I think that he can. backup nickel role? It's really what it is, is the backup nickel. And at that point in time, I think he can as well. And you start to look at their size. I know everybody's knocking Marcus Jones for his lack of size. I, I would venture to say that him and Miles Bryant are pretty much exactly the same size, right? Miles Bryant he also really plays the game player. much bigger than he is. Uh, uh, Jones does. Yeah. So that's the difference there. I think is that Marcus Jones, I, I do think has an ability or a chance here to beat out Miles Bryant as the second nickel or the backup nickel to Jonathan Jones. And then like you mentioned in certain games, when they go defensive back heavy, when they want to get more speed on the field to match Tyree kill and Jalen Waddle, he's going to have some opportunity there. And then you also think about, well, Jonathan Jones got hurt last year and then miles Bryant had to come in. And although it was good for a couple of weeks there in the middle of the season, played a great game against the chargers, played some good games in that winning streak. Once the sample size grew Miles Bryant started to get exposed then the Isaiah McKenzie game was kind of the cherry on top. Right. Yeah. So uh, I think that that's the biggest thing for Patriots fans that you can be optimistic about with Marcus Jones is that you can hope that he's better player than Miles Bryant. And maybe it gives the Patriots some better depth in the slot this year than what Miles so, Bryant was able to give them last year. If we want to go back to it. And unfortunately the sample size isn't huge because the first three weeks last year, Patriots didn't have a second slot corner on the roster. That's how much they liked Jonathan Jones. It was just him. And that was that, right? Yeah. He did play weeks four and five. And I think week five was Jonathan Jones last game of the season. If I remember correctly, um, miles Bryant did. So his usage rate as the second slot corner was 12% against Tampa and then 19% against Houston. Yeah. So I think that's probably what you're looking at in this, uh, you know, in this year for, 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 I keep wanting to say Malcolm Jones. I don't know why this is what you're looking at for Marcus Jones. I'm trying to see did John. Yeah. So Jonathan Jones did play in the Houston game. So the two games that miles Bryant was the true backup slot, 19%, 11%. That's the role that, that Marcus Jones is trying to win right now. And that's probably what his usage is in year one with, if assuming Jonathan Jones is healthy and stays on the field. Yep. Yep. I'm with you on that one. All right. Let's flip over back to the offense here for a second and uh, pull up this question that I think is a good one because assuming the Patriots run more two tight end this year, more than 12 personnel, you're going to have two wide receivers on the field in those packages, which two wide receivers are out there, which two wide receivers do they put out there uh, in those packages? I think is going to be very, very interesting from the 11 personnel looks that we've seen it's been mostly Parker Myers and Bourne as the top group. But when they've gone 12 personnel, Aguilar has gone in there a little bit more for that speed factor, right? On first and second down, you want to stretch the top, uh, stretch the field, take the top off, whatever phrase you want to use off those play action 
passing plays. So when they go 12 personnel, two wide receiver, who do you expect to be the two wide receivers on the field as of right now? So this is where I hope they keep some of the Earhart Perkins offense, if, like philosophy, right? Yeah. I, I, there should not, ideally, if this is what they're going to do, there's no definitive answer to this question. It's a mix. That is the best thing for them to do, right? Because you can come out in the same formation and run the same play in terms of what it looks like on the whiteboard, right? But if you run it with Aguilar and Myers, or sorry, if you run it with Aguilar and Bourne versus running it with Parker and Myers, those are two very different plays. Those are two two plays the defense has to defend differently even though it's the same formation and the same schematics, whatever you want to call it, the same X's and O's, right? So I would love to see the mix and match. I don't want there to be a definitive two. I think that's been the strength of the Patriots offense when it's at its best outside of 07 is they can mix and match the pieces and create essentially different looks from the same look and really keep defenses on their heels. So I, I, you know, who are their two best receivers? I think Parker and Bourne, but I would still mix and match and give defenses different looks because it expands your playbook. And maybe it's more complicated. I don't know, but I love yeah. that for the Earhart Perkins system. Even if they're going to go Shanahan, I'd like to see them keep that philosophy of it. Yeah, because it's a good point about the difference between these two schemes because with the Shanahan scheme, the idea is to have everything actually look the same, but it be a little bit different, right? So you right. want to have the play action passes marry up to the run concepts and everything is same personnel, same formations for the most part, but we're we're going to smoke and mirrors it. It's a little bit of deceptiveness pre-snap and, and things like that. Whereas with the Earnhardt Perkins offense, it's basically we're going to flood you with volume, right? We're got much a uh, uh, hockey lines of personnel groupings coming at you. We're going to change things up. We're going to have guys running from different spots. Everybody's an X receiver, right? A tight end right. can be an X receiver. A running back can be an X receiver. That's the Earnhardt Perkins offense. With this offense, it's every it's making sure that every single play looks exactly the same until they hit it differently. Right. And that's sort of the idea of it with the receivers. I think if you're going to go full Shanahan, I think that should be the phrase that we use from now on is if they're going to go full Shanahan, you have to have some speed on the outside in that offense. That's not an offense that to me is a great fit for Devontae Parker and Nikhil Harry on early downs, right? Like that's not really where I think they should be living because honestly, if you're going to be able to get up the field and take the top off, like those are the most important things. And really the key whole, the whole key to this concept is getting that intermediate route going, whether it's a crossing route or something like that. Usually it's over the middle. It could be a dig. It could be something on the inside like that. But for the most part, you're hitting crossing routes off of play action. And in order to get that going, you got to take the safety down the field. You have to. So if Parker is your ex receiver and you have no real speed element on that outside, that I think worries me in that kind of offense. And that's why I would look for guys like Aguilar, if it's not Aguilar, then it'll probably be Tyquan Thornton. Uh, those two guys to play on first and second down a little bit more than maybe the Parkers would because of that need for speed on the outside. And then you look at the inside receiver, the guy that's going to be running the crosser, and you start to get into that myers born battle. And I, I think that that's where you have to uh, look for that route runner. Uh, early indications, I would favor Bourne. Uh, there a little bit as well. So maybe you're looking at 12 personnel of Aguilar and Bourne, which I think is decent explosiveness from what they've had in years past. Like that's pretty solid in terms of ability to create big plays and get up the field uh, relative to, especially to what the Patriots have had over the last couple of years. I would just hate to see them go full Shanahan and then put Parker and Myers out there. No disrespect to either one of those players, but they're just, it needs to, you need to have some explosiveness and some speed coming from those two. I, I don't know if those two guys really bring it to you. Right. Yeah. No, I'd agree with that. All right. So you need some, it's, it's run after catchability. That's really what yeah. you're dancing around. It's run after catchability. Yeah. Those guys are good receivers, but they're not rack guys. Yeah. As you run after catchability on the outside, it's taking the top off. It's taking the coverage with you down the field. And then on that intermediate route, exactly. You want to have somebody that can 
run into those crosser windows and then take it to the house from there like Debo does uh, so often for the 49ers or Cooper Cup does so often for the Rams. Kendrick Bourne definitely fits that mold a little bit more than somebody like Jacoby Myers. So uh, we'll see what it ends up being. I don't think that that means they phase Myers out by any means. I just think Myers becomes the true slot on in 11 personnel situations, right? He's going to be the real slot yeah. receiver, whereas Bourne is going to be Z uh, and then Aguilar and Parker will be your X's depending on the situation and, and what they're trying to do. All right. Uh, let's uh, wrap it up here with one more question. Uh, delusional Patriots fan. Uh, maybe you're a little bit delusional per your name, but you're asking some good questions. So I'll pull up another one of your, your questions here about the pass rush outside of Judon Barmore, which is what we saw last year. That was the two headed monster. Right. Those two guys were able to get after the passer during the win streak. That was a big part of their defensive success was unlocking those two players and getting after it. Are you, where's your confidence level in anybody else emerging outside of those two? Because eventually it did rear its ugly head that they only had two guys that could really get after the quarterback. Well, I feel like the plan is, is for this player to come internally, right? Talking about, you know, or I, I don't know, maybe I'm misreading this question. Is there any hope for another player? Okay. I thought he was asking about like adding like free agency. Like, I don't know about yeah. that. Yeah. I think the plan is for somebody like Josh UJ or Ronnie Perkins. Yeah to step up and fill that role. I think that's the idea and it's too early to tell because they're not even wearing pads and you can't judge the front seven in these kind of practices. But I think that's the idea pretty much. Yeah. Josh UJ seems to be the guy. Uh, that's what I think they all are hoping is going to bring some more juice to this pass rush. And maybe Ronnie Perkins is a factor as well. I, I actually look at Ronnie Perkins and his tape at Oklahoma and have better hope that he could be a factor on first and second down setting the edge of the defense. I think he plays with good pad level anticipation with blocks power uh, for his size. I think that he could fit into that type of role. If you're looking for somebody to come in and, and bring some juice to the pass rush, it's, it's clearly that they are hoping that it's going to be Uche. I also wouldn't sleep on Cam McGrone as an interior blitzer. I, he was really good at that at Michigan. I think that's the hope there as well is that he could bring some of those inside Hightower-esque type blitzes up the middle and be a factor in the pass rush in that respect as well. So some pass rush talk there for you. They have huge hopes, I think, for guys like Josh Uche and Cam McGrone to bring some speed, to bring some explosiveness, not just in coverage, not just in space, but also getting after the quarterback and, and being able to get downhill and get to the QB. So uh, that will wrap up the Q&A edition, Alex, of this Patriots Beat podcast because we got to give – some some time here to the Boston Sports Minute. This is a story right now in Boston, obviously, is what's going to be going on at the, the Chase Center, right? That's what it's called out there in San Francisco. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it was one of the ones that got named after crypto. The Chase Center out in San Francisco tonight, game one of the NBA Finals, Boston Sports Minute. Oh, it is the Chase Center. Right now here for you here on Patriot Speed. Alex, what's your feeling about game one here tonight? I think we might be differing in opinions here on our game one predictions, but I'm, I'm interested to hear yours now. Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I think that the Celtics have, even, even though they, and we all admitted this, they needed the break there coming off of whatever it was. I think it was uh, 11 games in 20 days or something like that. They have not played well when they've had extended layoffs, right? They lost the yeah. first game of the Milwaukee series after about a week off. Um, they they had whatever it was, five days before game three of that series, which they lost. And they also lost game one against the Heat. They've lost game one of the last two series. I think it's certainly a feeling out process. I think a lot of people talk about them being familiar with the Warriors. And I think that's true to an extent. But I think there's a difference between the you know the Warriors in December and the Warriors in June, right? In any given season, I think that this is a team that cranks it up in the playoffs. So I think it's going to be a bit of a feeling out process for the Celtics. Uh, I I hardly you know think it, it tonight decides the series, but I I think the Warriors ultimately take this one tonight. I think that they're going to you know everybody's talking about it, it's like it's like the Patriots and the Chiefs, right? Where yeah, everybody's talking about the Chiefs as this young upstart team, and the Patriots came out and just took it to them right and, and and set the record straight i think the Warriors, not necessarily in the whole series but i think tonight uh they i think they have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder pete you know 538 has the celtics at 80 percent. espn has oh the celtics wow. at 86 percent, which is way too much yeah. even if you're picking the celtics you shouldn't be that confident in it they got steph curry still who's an unreal shooter the best shooter in the league 
Um, I think the Warriors end up taking the game tonight. I think it's going to be a frustrating one. So before we get into what I think of this game, I just want to go on, and usually you're the anti-math guy on this show, right? Usually yeah. you go after the nerds. I'm going to go after the nerds for a second when do what you just said about 538 and ESPN power index. My read on those two situations is that I think that those models are full of shit. And I mean that they're full of shit, not because I don't think the math is works or the model works. I mean, they're but the math doesn't work. Just let me, let me finish. I think they're full of shit because I think that they are more concerned about engagement than they are about being accurate and putting the Celtics out there on a graphic and saying that they're an 80% chance to beat the Warriors gets a lot more engagement than saying that the Warriors are 80% favorites over the Celtics, right? Like the Celtics getting the underdog status by 538 is what we all expect them to be is the underdog in this series. I think that that's 110% clickbait. I think that they're twisting the numbers a little bit there to get people riled up and get engagement. I think that you can throw all those out the window. And Vegas agrees. Vegas doesn't care one bleep about what 538 says. They're good. Their Warriors are favorites in this series. Not heavy favorites, but, but they're comfortable favorites uh, to win the series over the Celtics. The reason why I like the Celtics tonight in this game one, though, is you mentioned that the Warriors might come in, the old guard with the chip on the shoulder. You know, we're too old, we're too slow. Like Edelman was barking at Brady throughout that playoff run in 2018. When you turn on the national media and the Celtics – all of them, you know, you hear Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown after game seven in the Eastern Conference Finals. Oh, they wanted to, us to break up. They thought we had to, you know, couldn't play together, right? That was the rallying cry. Marcus Smart goes to the podium all the time and says something similar along those lines that nobody believed in them. That's They're using that as fuel, right? They're using right. that as their chip. When you turn on ESPN, when you turn on FS1 first take or whatever it's called, Bayless and uh, uh, and Shannon, Skip and Shannon and their show, the bottom line graphic isn't finals prediction. It isn't, you know, are the Celtics, you know, going to beat the Warriors? It's do the Celtics have a chance to beat the Warriors, right? Like can the Celtics right. make this more than a five game series? Like that's the national kind of coverage of this series right now is that the Warriors are going to come in and stomp the Celtics. Like there is no sort of Celtics angle to that at whatsoever in terms of positivity. And I think the Celtics are going to use that as, as fuel. I think it's as the other should. way. I think the Celtics are going to put up on the, on the bulletin board that uh, on Skip and Shannon this morning, they're asking if the Celtics even have a chance to make this a series, let alone win the title. And they're going to, they're going to play the nobody believes in this card. And if you're going to truly play the nobody believes in this card effectively, then you need to win game one. Like that's the game where you need to come out. You need to be a heavyweight. You need to knock out the warriors in game one and announce your presence and say, this isn't going to be a five games, you know, gentlemen sweep. Like this is a series. Like we're coming here to win this thing. I think the warriors might be sleeping on the Celtics a little bit. I think this, there is that natural feeling of the Celtics after so many chances to break through might actually just be happy to be here. Right. I, yeah. I don't know. I think the warriors are, and, and I think the narrative about, you know, how experienced are they in the finals? I think there's something to that. I don't think it's as big of a deal as everybody says it is, but one of the things is I think they they've been to this point enough times to know that when you get to this point, you can't overlook the opponent. I think too, another talking point a lot this week has been the nine and seven record, right? Yeah. The Celtics are the only team in the Steve Kerr era to be over 500 against the Warriors. And I think the Warriors are, you want to talk about bulletin board material. If I'm Steve Kerr, I'm putting that up there. See, it's already decided. They beat you. They beat you in December. So the national media is saying that this is already over and we're going to lose like that. That would be my well, message. That would be a real, I mean, look, we've seen like Roddy Harrison in 03 is kind of the poster child of spitting narratives. Like that 03 team was the favorite from the jump. And, and he was out there saying, nobody believes in us. But if the Warriors try to make the nobody believes in us argument, they that, are, that's they, no, they're, they're, they're not trying to, they are. I mean, Draymond's doing it. They're, they're talking about like, everybody thinks we're old. Everybody thinks we're washed up. We were away yeah. for two years. People think that's it. And I'm telling yeah. you that nine and seven record, they're not, I, I don't think the Warriors, I, you texted me this earlier this week and I kind of, I kind of agreed with you that I'm actually coming back on that. I, 
I don't think the Warriors are going to sleep on the Celtics. I don't. I think that nine and seven thing, think about what that says. Think about what that really says. If the Warriors can climb over 500 against the Celtics, which unless this series goes, if they win the series in less than seven games, they would do. For a span of whatever it is, however long Kerr has been there, I think this is what, uh, seventh year? Sixth year, seventh year? We're going pretty long on Kerr now, for, yeah. For the span of however many years it is, you have a winning record against every other team in the league. That's, I mean, that's Brady Belichick-esque. And it's different because it's basketball. It's not football. But I I think there's something to that. I think that's something the Warriors can use. And it's been out there. It's There was a big graphic on SportsCenter about it. It's been out there. They know about it. I, I don't think they're sleeping on the Celtics. I think they know better than that. Okay, fair enough. I just, if for the Celtics to have a chance in this series, to me, I think they need to come out tonight and at least make this a close game against Golden State. If not, win it, but they got to come down to the wire with it. I, I don't think that you can do what, what you did against Milwaukee, what you did no, against no. Miami, where you sleepwalk through game one and then end up winning a seven-game series because I don't think Golden State's going to leave the door ajar like the Bucks and the, and the Heat ended up doing for the Celtics after winning game one. You mentioned the Celtics haven't been great in game one. They also won game one of Brooklyn the Brooklyn series at the buzzer, right? The Jason Tatum buzzer beater uh, won game one in that series as well. So game one has been a little bit shaky for, yeah. for Boston uh, in this playoff run. But uh, I, I like the Celtics tonight. I think they're going to come out and try to prove a point to Golden State that they, they have a chance in this series and that it's not it's not going to be a cakewalk for the Warriors just uh, and uh, kind of come out and send the message. If they're going to win the series, I feel like they got to do that. I, I feel like they got to send a message here tonight. And, uh, and win this game. Uh, before we sign off, a couple of retirements in the NFL that I wanted to get to quickly, Alex. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick hanging it up. Uh, Fitz magic no more. It sounds like he's going to be an analyst somewhere, Amazon or Fox or something like that. So uh, it's not going to be the complete end of Ryan Fitzpatrick in the NFL world. Uh, but what are you, what's your take on Ryan Fitzpatrick's career? Because you know me, I, I hate fun, so I, I'm, I'm lukewarm on Ryan Right, yeah, I can see you're not liking Ryan Fitzpatrick. By the way, started the second most games of any quarterback against the Patriots in the Bill Belichick era behind Peyton do? Manning. Regular season. Well, well, no, I mean, it's a tie to the Patriots. He's, the Patriots fans saw him more yeah. than anybody but Peyton Manning. So I think there's, you know, we're familiar with him. Obviously, he spent a lot of years in the division. I think there's something to that. Yeah. Uh, he, he, one of the most unique careers, I think, in NFL history, right? He came out of Harvard in case you didn't know that. Ryan Fitzpatrick went to Harvard. Get those in while you still can. Um, you know, he was a third string. He kind of bounced around and, and he just seemed to keep finding places to play and it was interesting when Ryan, when Ryan Fitzpatrick was ingrained in the starter, right? When a team gave him a big contract or the, the, the second best quarterback or the guy ahead of him on the depth chart was hurt. He was like average at best. He yeah. turned ball over a lot, whatever. When Ryan Fitzpatrick was playing for his job, when the team he was on drafted somebody or he'd had a couple of bad weeks and, you know, maybe they put the guy, his backup in, in the second half of the game and the backup went off. The second you turn that pressure up, Ryan Fitzpatrick would play like a top 10 quarterback in the league. It was really unbelievable. And he, the way he played the game too, the way he played the position, Evan, we've talked about on this show. We love watching Brian Hoyer at training camp yeah. because he knows he has nothing to lose. He's going to make the team because of what he gives as a leader. So he's going to go out there and sling it and be aggressive and throw the ball all over the field and all of that. Right. Ryan Fitzpatrick played every single game like that. And it was just really, maybe not if he was the quarterback for your team, it wasn't as fun to watch because it was so hit and miss. But, you know, as a neutral observer, I go back to, remember the play against the Raiders when he was in Miami where they're yanking his face mask yeah. back and he still completes it on a dot, like 40 yards down the field. Who does that? Who even Mahomes isn't doing that. So a guy, a guy I, that a no risk it, no biscuit type of right. He just, right? he he played the game. He played the game like he was out in the backyard having fun. Um, and then in the later years, you start to develop the personality. There's the famous press conference in Tampa. And then the Thursday night press conference with the Hawaiian shirt and all of that. You kind of saw him start to be a little goofy. Oh the beard God. really got there. So there just a fun player. I think, you know, in some ways, the best of what the NFL can be. And I wish him nothing but the best. And I think he's going to be good in the booth. I, you know, the, the post game yeah, interviews he did, he was good. So. I'm 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 not super psyched about Thursday night football on the Amazon, all of that. I think it's going to be a bit of a forced product, but if they bring Ryan Fitzpatrick and they have my attention, I think that's a good step. I don't think there's any player whose likability and hype is so skewed towards like his his appearance and like what he says and like his 
off-field demeanor, I guess is the way to put it, yeah. versus how good he actually was on the field as a quarterback. You know, he never made a playoff game, I don't think. I don't think he ever won a playoff game. I don't know if you ever even made the playoffs I'll check. in the NFL. I'm pretty positive that he has a negative TD to INT ratio, like he's thrown more interceptions and touchdowns in his career. He was a journeyman quarterback that is so legendary for his persona and for his playing style and for the fact that he just seemed like invincible, just going from stop to stop. And he's played for half the league. He played for every team in the AFC East, except the Patriots, right? He played for the Jets, right. Dolphins and the bills. The guy is like a, is like a, a cockroach, right? He's, he could never be killed. And yet he was a very mediocre quarterback. So he's a legend in a lot of people's minds in this era of the NFL and it has absolutely nothing to do with how good he was as a player. So in some ways I got to give him props because that's hard to do to be that well liked and that have all that hype around you and, and to be have to have that much support for somebody that was pretty mid it, it is tough to do. Well, right. I mean, he was the ultimate bridge quarterback. That's, he, yeah. you know, he was, you know, that yeah. you bring him in for a year before you draft your guy. You look at the last couple teams he played for Tampa and they, you know, right. then they drafted Jameis. The Jets drafted, uh, I don't remember who in 17, uh, Darnold, right? Miami right. drafted Tua. He was there, Washington. They traded for Carson Wentz. I think they'd be better off bringing back Fitzpatrick. But um, no, a positive, by the way, positive touchdown interception ratio, 223 to 169. Okay. So, so I was, I was being that. a little bit too mean for him on 60, that one. 60%. Uh, completion percentage on his curl, like just over 60% to the decimal yeah. and 210 yards per game. And he could run a little bit too. Let's not forget. He could run a little bit too. Where's his rushing stats here. You are rushing yards per game, 50, uh, 16 rushing yards per game. Uh, I said it to you earlier. Rushing touchdowns. He was, he thought he was Brett Favre, but he was nowhere near as talented as Brett Favre, but he played the game like Brett Favre did, right? Just, Slinging it, an absolute gunslinger. I mean, he, he's like a, he's like a folk hero. That's why he's yeah, a look. He's, he's like a folk hero. hero. He was he was something yeah. out of a video game. He was fun. Yes, there you go. So there's Ryan Fitzpatrick. Frank Gore also technically retired today, but he's been out of the NFL, I think, for a year or two already. So I, I don't but know. If he that's... was in the league in 2020, just one year. Okay, so uh, he he was basically retired already. Uh, third top five all time in rushing, right? I think he's third. Sixteen thousand yards exactly. Yeah, tons he of yards. Is, on the uh, rushing yards. He is third all time with sixteen thousand. Really good longevity. Uh, I don't know if he was ever really special as a runner, but the longevity was there for for Frank Gore, right? To get stack up those rushing yards. It's kind of like you know, the old Barry Sanders versus Emmett Smith argument, right? Emmett Smith wasn't as flashy, but he got the yards and. He got the accolades. Uh, I think Frank Gore is not Emmett Smith, but he's certainly in that category of somebody that was just a workhorse that ta tallied up yard after yard after yard and got to third all time. And then lastly, uh, Alex Mack, the well, center. Wait, wait, I'll say real, real quick on real quick on Frank Gore, who, by yeah. the way, nine thousand yard receive it, nine thousand yard rushing seasons, which is the fifth most all time, but the most since two thousand. And obviously, we know the game changed a lot in the yeah. early 2000s. So I think that is significant. And he yeah. came into the league in 2005, really started playing in 2006. I, I hate the idea that for the most part, I think using durability as a hall of fame um, qualifier, he's gone is a little off, but I think at that position, yeah. you look at running backs, how many running backs play eight years in the league? And he came I mean, into the league with injuries too. Remember right. and a lot of people thought that he would not play more than four or five years. And he ended up making it this long and he played 16. So yeah. average exactly a thousand yard season. So at running back to play that long third, all time in rushing yards, I I'd put him in. I think he belongs in. Yeah. I think he'll ultimately get in really quickly. Alex Mack, the center uh, with the 49ers now, right. And uh, was with the Falcons in Super Bowl 51, played Super Bowl 51 for Atlanta with a broken fibula. Uh, that's a football guy. Like he's a, he was yeah. a football guy through and through really, really good athlete. One of the better athletes at the center position in his prime was kind of like Alex Mack, Jason Kelsey with the Eagles. Those were the two guys that could really run at that position. Really good player. 
Alex Mack. He retires as well. Big loss for the 49ers. He was kind of a, a pivot guy, as obviously, at that center position for that offensive line. Uh, that's going to be some big shoes to fill. But those are the three retirements today uh, in the NFL. Kind of retirement day around the league was uh, Mack, Fitz, Gore, hanging him up in the NFL. And uh, – I'm glad we got to discuss those guys a little bit and, and reminisce about their careers. Even Ryan Fitzpatrick, who I think is is right. Oh, no, I, I was going to make you do a Ryan Fitzpatrick segment one way or the other. I'll say this. So the Browns in 2009, when they drafted Alex Mack, and this is kind of heading into really some dark times for the Cleveland Browns. Yeah. They had, they had four picks in the top 52. They took Alex Mack in the first round, then three second round picks, Brian Rubisky, Muhammad Massaqua, David Vicoon. So they, if not for Alex Mack, you're talking about an all-time draft miss in that class. And then even uh, the year before, oh, they didn't have any top 100 picks the year before. Two years before, they took Brady Quinn, 22nd overall. Yes. So Alex Mack, good player. A rare draft hit for the Cleveland Browns. Great offensive lineman. uh, Great group of guys there retiring today. Uh, This is usually the time of the year in the NFL when you're getting back out there to mandatory mini camp, OTAs, and the guys that just don't have it anymore, this is kind of when you start to hear that, right? Where uh, I'm trying to ramp it back up for the season and my body just can't do it, right? I just, it just right. isn't, isn't there anymore for me. So we start to hear a little bit more about veteran retirements, I'm sure, across the NFL. As I mentioned, next week, Tuesday through Thursday, mandatory minicamp down at Gillette Stadium. We will have Patriots Beat Podcast reacting to those days. I think we won't do one on Wednesday, right? Because the Celtics played uh, game three. Yeah, uh, I'll be, I won't be able to. Yeah, so Tuesday and Thursday, we will do shows like we normally do, uh, recapping everything that we see uh, down at Mandatory Minicamp in Foxborough. Uh, you can read my work on Mandatory Minicamp, clnsmedia.com, Alex at 985thesportshub.com. So we'll both have a ton of coverage uh, of Minicamp next week, and I'm really looking forward to getting out there and seeing three straight days with a full roster of some real football. So keep it right here on Patriots beat for mandatory minicamp next week. And we'll see you all on Tuesday. Enjoy the weekend. Go Celtics. And until next time, signing off for Alex Barth, I'm Evan Lazar. Thanks for watching everybody. We'll see you Tuesday.